student, you are dismissed. Bless and thank those that are going out with you to help you and teach you and love on you. I'm very happy that you're here with us today. I greet you in the name of my Savior. Um, Wednesday nights, we gather at uh, Shirley and I's home at 6.30 and we are going through a little study trying to understand. Really my goal is to help us fall in love with the Old Testament. Because uh, it's two-thirds of the whole Bible. Um, and uh, uh, I realize that that's an endeavor that is challenging. But it's an endeavor that I believe with all my heart is worthwhile. And uh, trying to help us see how it fits with the New Testament. And um, just the value and the glory and the beauty of some of the... We're not going through the whole Old Testament. We're taking certain books, four books in particular. I'm going to look at those this fall. And um, I made the statement... Wednesday night that one of the reasons that I love the Old Testament is because the New Testament for me challenges me on how I ought to live how life ought to work but the Old Testament presents to me life as it really is and by studying the Old Testament, I see how the people of God dealt with life as it is. Dysfunctional families, conflict, failure, attack, mean-spirited people dealing with people that wish they would act differently. It's, just, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a reality check for me, and I, I find it very helpful. Um, having said all that, I want us to look at a couple of passages in Isaiah today that talk about not life as it should be, but life as it is. And uh, uh, I hope that the Lord will speak to you. The Lord, as I studied this, I'm, I'm journeying through the book of Isaiah in my devotional life, and some of you are doing that with me. And um, man, this week I read Isaiah 7, 8, and 9. Um, and it, boy, the Lord spoke to me just like a, a, a freight train. And I thought it was something that was maybe worthy of your consideration. And um, maybe it would apply to you as well. Uh, I'm gonna, let me just read these two passages to you. Let me, let me give you one little word of preface. Um. The people of God at this time live in the bottom half of Israel, other, otherwise known as Judah or the southern kingdom. And uh, they had some neighbors to the north, Syria and Israel, the northern kingdom. They, Israel, the northern kingdom and Syria hated the, the little country of Judah. And they wanted to conquer them. And uh, so they banded together. Syria and Israel banded together. And were mobilizing their troops. Getting ready to invade Judah. Where the people of God lived. And the people of God heard about this. And so <laughs> clearly it would be like us hearing that a big huge... Uh, army from an enemy nation nearby is heading our way with the intention of conquering us. And how we would respond to that is exactly um, how they responded. They're facing this huge threat from this huge army that's coming to do them harm and to conquer them. And they, because filled with stress and worry and anxiety, because this army is coming. Everybody knew they were coming. Um, uh, the threat was not imaginary. It was not in their minds. It was a real army that was really committed to their harm and destruction. And they were really coming their way. So the threat 
was real. It was serious and it was imminent. And the people of God in Judah did exactly what we would do. They immediately gather uh, at the capital of Jerusalem, their strongest fortress, and they start gathering supplies, food, water, medicines, um, anything they can get their hands on, they're gathering it together. And they, are, they immediately start uh, reinforcing their defenses. They're gathering weapons and they're strengthening the walls and uh, you know anything they can do to make the place stronger uh, in defense of this army that's coming. And then the last thing they do, which is exactly what we would do, they um, immediately send out envoys both to the north and to the south, to Assyria, not Syria, that's the part of the army that's coming to attack them, but there's an even bigger army to the north of them uh, called Assyria. And they are very big and bad. And then they also send out envoys to the south, to Egypt. And uh, they try to get Assyria and Egypt to ally with them, to come and help them fight against Israel and uh, Syria. So that's sort of the, the, uh, the background of what's going on. And in the midst of all of this preparation, gathering weapons, gathering supplies, making alliances. Would you please get out of here and quit bothering us? <laughs> um, uh, in, uh, in the midst of all that, God sends the prophet of the day, not the only prophet, but the, 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 the main man, uh, the main spokesman for God living at that time was a guy named Isaiah. And all of you have heard of his name. And God sends him with a message to the people of God. And let me just go on and tell you real quickly, and then I will read it to you, and you'll see that I'm telling you the truth. Um, basically, what Isaiah tells the people of God in Judah, who are getting ready for this attack by these uh, uh, neighboring countries that are coming to destroy them or to at least conquer them and enslave them he says first of all he says y'all are stressed and worried and upset about something I've already told you something that was real something that was uh, uh, I mean uh, uh, it was imminent and it was it was it was not something that they just were worried about that wasn't gonna, this is a real imminent threat that is approaching very quickly but what God says to him is you are stressing and you are upset today about something that tomorrow and tomorrow doesn't mean 24 hours in the next few days but in the next few what you're stressing about today in a few days won't even be an issue the thing that's keeping you up at night, the thing that you're all anxious about, the thing that's making your blood pressure shoot through the roof, the thing that's giving you indigestion, the thing that's making you upset or grumpy uh, with the people that live with you, that which you are upset about today, in a few days, it will not even be an issue. Isaiah tells them another word. The second word is, the things that you are looking to, the, actually the people, the Egyptians and the Assyrians, the, the help, the salvation that you are looking to to try to rescue your fannies, not only are those things not going to help you, they're going to ultimately become harm to you. Because ultimately the Assyrians and the Egyptians not only don't come to bring help, they do come later on and they're bringing great harm. And then the other thing he says is this. He says, I appeal to you to stop focusing on things that don't matter and to begin focusing on on things that do. So let me read this to you real quick. Now look, this is my translation. They've got, they probably got NIV or New American, I don't know what they got up there, uh, New Living Translation. 
this is my, but this is right, okay? I'm not, I'm, I, it's a good, I'll stand by it. But, uh, but uh, it's, it, it's a little different than the one that you'll read up there, but you'll be able to follow along. You listen, okay? Isaiah chapter 7, and then Isaiah chapter 8. Listen to the word of the Lord. When Ahaz, king of Judah, I'm sorry, when Ahaz was king of Judah, King Rezin of Syria and Pekah, king of Israel, set out to attack Jerusalem. However, they were unable to carry out their plan. The news had come to the royal court of Judah. Syria is allied with Israel against us. So the hearts of the king and his people trembled with fear like trees shaking in a storm. Then the Lord said to Isaiah, Take your son and go out to meet King Ahaz of Judah. You'll find him at the end of the aqueduct that feeds water into the upper pool near where cloth is washed. The implication is that the king is down near where the water supply area is coming into the city and he is helping. Literally, this is so dire, so serious, so imminent, this danger, that the king leaves the throne and goes out into the city to help prepare the city for this onslaught that's coming. The implication is kings didn't go out and direct waterworks unless it was that bad. And so that's the point that, that, that the writer is making there. Uh, let's see here. Tell him to stop worrying, for he doesn't need to fear the fierce anger of those, who, those two used up kings. Rezin of Syria and Pekah of Israel. Yes, the kings of Syria and Israel are plotting against him, saying, we'll attack Judah and capture it and install our own man as Judah's king. But this is what the sovereign Lord says. This invasion will never happen. It will never take place for Syria and its king and Israel and its king will both be crushed and destroyed. And then I'm going to skip down a little bit and finish this passage. It says, God says to the, his people, Unless your faith is firm, I cannot make you stand. And that's an ominous word. Very rarely in the Bible does the Bible ever describe God with words that say he can't. You could probably count it with one hand. Maybe, I can only think of twice. Remember that time in the Gospels where it says that Jesus went into that town and it says he couldn't do many miracles because of their unbelief. That's an amazing statement if you think about it. The, the Son of God that woke up one morning before breakfast and created the universe, he couldn't do many miracles because of their unbelief. That's an, theologically, that is a mind-blowing declaration. Here God says, unless your faith is firm, I, I, Jehovah God, cannot make you stand. Oh, the value in Him. Places on our belief in Him. Oh, the value that God places on my confidence in Him, my trust in Him. And when I, with my words or my life, relate to God in a way that declares, I do not trust you. I do not believe that you will help me. The consequences and the ramifications of that. I'm not talking about God. I didn't say God's mad. I'm not saying God's mad at anybody. God just has chosen to relate to his people via faith. And when we have strong faith and exercise that faith, that impacts the way God relates to us. I'm not talking about God being mad or punishing or zapping. That's not what it says and that's not what I'm saying. But He has sovereignly chosen to 
to limit how he relates to you and to me based upon our faith in him. And if that's created more questions for you than answers, good. Because it's had the same impact upon me. But that's what it says. Let me go on. Let's jump down to uh, Isaiah 8. I'm going to start in verse 9. Huddle together, you nations. Be terrified. Listen, all you distant lands. Prepare for battle, but you will be crushed. Prepare for battle, but you will be crushed. Call your war councils, but they are worthless. Develop your war strategies, but they will not succeed. For God is with us. Now, that's an amazing declaration. You're thinking, "Woo! God's talking about the enemy nations of the people of God. And because God's with us, woo! look at the bad stuff that's going to happen to all the other nations. Let's read on. Uh, why won't your strategies work? Why won't they succeed? For God is with us. The Lord has given me a strong warning not to think like everyone else does. He has said, don't call everything a conspiracy like they do. Don't live in dread of what frightens them. Make the Lord of heaven's armies holy in your life. He's the one you should fear. He's the one who should make you tremble. He will keep you safe. But to Israel and Judah, he will be a stone that makes people stumble. A rock that makes them fall. And for the people of Jerusalem, he will be a trap and a snare. Many will stumble and many will fall and never rise again. They will be snared and captured. Preserve the teaching of God. Entrust his instructions to those who follow me. For I will wait for the Lord who has turned away from the descendants of Jacob and I will put my hope in him. I have read and read and read and reread and reread and reread that passage, those two passages. And what I feel like the Lord is saying to me or challenging me with is just this idea of how important it is that I try to keep my focus in the midst of real life battles. Battles with your health. Battles with death of loved ones and friends. Imminent surgeries and ongoing health challenges that you wouldn't wish on your worst enemy. Marriage problems. Our battles in the lives of our children, financial battles, living in a world that is as filled with craziness as, as ever has been. And I've never known a time when our world is just so unstable and uncertain and crazy. In the midst of all of... God's not saying, I feel like it's not. God's not saying live in denial and, you know, confess what is true even when it's not true. I don't know about all that. I hear that a lot on TV and on the radio uh, when I dare turn on some of those folks. But, but uh, I, I don't know about all that. What I, what I know is this. We live in a very, very broken, scary, hurting world. And our lives, a lot of the time, reflect that scariness, that pain, that dysfunction, that craziness. We're not immune to any of that. It's a part of our lives as well. We can act like that's not true, but 
Shirley and I get mad at each other. We get crossways just like, just like our neighbors that don't know him. My kids do wrong just like people's kids that live on the other side of me that don't know the Lord's kids do wrong. I have financial troubles just like my neighbors that, that don't go to church. My house gets broken. Uh, well, they're not here today, but my, my house gets broken into just like people that don't know the Lord's house gets broken into. We're not immune. The question's not how can I live a victorious life that blocks me from the problems of life? That's the wrong question. And as you've heard me say a million times, if we ask the wrong question, we'll get the wrong answer every time. The question is, how can I live a life of confidence and trust in God when everything around me, whether it's an approaching army, or it's a letter from the bank, or it's a phone call from my doctor, or it's a, a policeman knocking on my door with my kid standing beside him, or it's a visit to the funeral home this coming week. How do I deal with that and get through that in a way that reflects that I have a faith in God, I am in covenant with God, I am in relationship with God, and because of that, it impacts me as I go through these things differently. I would just say that the Bible is filled with examples of how easy it is to focus on the wrong things. Things that don't last. Things that don't matter. So much so that I exclude focusing on things that do last and that do matter. I think that's what God is telling His people through Isaiah here. He's saying... Y'all are all stressed out and worried about an army that, you, that is approaching, but it's not going to touch you. You're focusing on something that doesn't matter because it won't last to the exclusion of focusing on things that do matter and that will have lasting impact. Let me give you some examples real quickly. Noah. You know, the dude with the boat, the flood, right? If I was Noah, you were Noah, you know what I'd be focused on? Oh my gosh, how are we going to get all these animals in this boat? How are we going to build the boat? Where are we going to get all the lumber? How's that going to work? How are we going to get all these supplies? <coughs> God's forgotten a steering wheel, so how in the world are we going to drive this thing? Propel this thing through the water? How are we going to last uh, so long cooped up in this boat. How are we going to keep the lions from eating the, uh, the, the uh, whatever other kind of animal, the gazelles? How, how, my mind would be filled with concerns that at the end of the story, Noah goes, why did I worry about any of that? You know what? I don't think that entire journey of building that boat that took a hundred years and I forgot how long they were in the boat, but I want to say about a year, give or take. Y'all correct me if you know better. Uh, and then it took a long time for them to get settled down, get all back out. I don't, that's a long time. Do you know the thought never crossed Noah's mind, I'll bet. Noah, you drink too much. And if you don't get a handle on your drinking, it's going to have a lasting, destructive impact upon your children. I bet that thought never crossed Noah's mind. Man, I've got stuff that I'm stressed out about. I'm worried about. I'm over. I've got all anxiety about. Is one of them that you drink too much? No, dude. That's not even on my radar. I got bigger fish to fry. But the thing that was to this very day, the world suffers the consequences of Noah's inability to get a hold of his drinking. I, did you hear me say that if you have a glass of wine or a, a dinner or a beer at a ball game that you're wicked and God doesn't love you? Is that what you heard me say? It is not. But I know from painful experience 
the negative, devastating consequences of what happens in a family where people can't control that. Noah should have focused on things that mattered long term and not worried about things that didn't matter long term. I've got almost 20 examples. Let me give you a couple others. Abraham. Abraham's worried about a famine. He's worrying about his family and his livestock. He's worrying about going down to Egypt. And hey, you know, we're going to have to go down there and get food because God can't provide for us back up here in this famine land. So, uh, God, you know, we're going to try to kill me. Oh my God, his men are going to see how pretty my wife is and they're going to want to want her and they're going to try to kill me. Oh my gosh, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? Abraham. What you should have been worried about is not the famine or the soldiers of Pharaoh. You should have been worried about buying that slave girl and coming up with a terrible plan. Listen, you and your wife came up with a terrible plan that involved uh, a, a, an Egyptian slave girl and having a son by her. That was a serious thing that God wanted Abraham to focus on. But he was too busy focused on the immediate and not focused on what was long term. Lot, Abraham's nephew. Oh my gosh, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? All got all these cattle, all this sheep, all this stuff. Our men are fighting. Our animals are butting into each other and eating each other's food, drinking each other's water. What are we going to do? What are we going to do? Lot, why are you worrying about that? What you should have been worrying about is the people you choose to develop friendships with and live around. That's a real issue. The relationships you choose to build a lifetime with, they will determine your destiny. I could go on. Jacob. Oh, Lord, don't you, can't you hear Jacob praying, Lord? The treachery of my brother Esau. The treachery of my uncle uh, Laban. Oh, the treachery. They're wronging me. They're robbing me. They're, they're being mean to me. They're doing me. God, would you help us with the treachery of these rats that are being mean to me? Jacob, how about the treachery in your own heart? You're going to teach your children, your sons, how to live lives of treachery. Not because of the treachery of your brother or your uncle, but because of the treachery in your own life. And I could talk about Israel in the wilderness. Isn't it funny that Israel was continually afraid of Pharaoh, Pharaoh's army, getting through the Red Sea, where are we going to drink water? How are we going to get bread? Where are we going to get meat? How are we going to stand against our enemies? And the whole time God, God is saying, guys, your problems are not your supplies. Your problems are not your neighbors that you think are going to harm you. Your problem is not getting from point A to point B. Your problem is that you've got idolatry in your heart. And when push comes to shove, you will worship that which you think will give you control over worshiping somebody who declares to you on the front, front end, I will not let you control me. I'd love for you to worship me, but I will not let you control me. Your problem's not your supplies or your provision or your enemies. Your problem is that you default to worshiping that which you can control rather than worshiping Him who you cannot control. Samson. Oh my gosh, we got all these Philistine armies running wild and conquering us and treating us mean. What are we going to do? What are we going to do? What, what kind of plan and strategy? I can't get the armies organized. People won't listen to me and do what I say. You feel like that? God says, your focus is on the wrong thing, Samson. Your focus is on you've got uncontrollable lust in your heart. And it's going to destroy your life. Same with David. David's running a kingdom, man. He's king of the 
God's people. He's trying to get a, a tabernacle moved. He's trying. He's running from Saul. He's fighting Goliath. He's got all these things going on. I mean, he's busy, busy, busy. Got a zillion things going on. David, your enemy, that which you should be focused on, is not all these things, these outside things that you think are so terrible. What you ought to focus on is what the battles you have when you're alone. The biggest enemy you've got, David, is you. And it manifests itself when you're alone. Quit worrying about things that don't matter, that aren't your real enemies, that won't last, and start focusing on the things that will last. And I can, Martha, obviously, let's jump to the New Testament real quickly. Martha. Martha's all upset. My sister won't do right. My sister won't help. My sister won't qualities. Living for herself. And I'm stuck with all the duties. Anybody in this room got a family dynamic going on like that? I know you do. Why won't my siblings cooperate and pitch in and help? And Jesus just point blank says to Martha, Martha. You are worried about so many things. What's that mean? Let me translate that. You're worried about stuff that doesn't matter. You think I'm, you think the Son of God is all stressed out about what kind of meal we're going to have tonight? You think, you think that's my big, big on my radar? The, 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 the menu tonight. And whether everybody gets a little plate or a big plate, probably everybody in the room needed a smaller plate than the one they were going to get anyway. Because uh, I've seen y'all eat it on first Sunday. Uh, it wouldn't hurt it. You know, what if, Kim walks in here all every time, stressed out. What if the food runs out? Well, I said, have you seen our crowd? It would be good if the food ran out. Good for all of us. Uh, it wouldn't hurt a, a soul in here to stop by Jenny Craig rather than Crystal's. Uh, but anyway, that's another story. That's another day. Um, um, I, I go up. What are we going to do? What are we going to do? How am I going to build enough barns? How am I going to build them fast enough? And God says, sir, you're worried about building barns. What you ought to be worried about is are you ready to die? Because you're going to, die, you're going to face death tonight. You see, we're, we all, the, what's the, what are all these stories saying? And I can give you story after story after story. We're focused on things that don't matter. We're focused on things that are so short-lived. And we're not focused on that which is real and true and lasting and that matters. The rich young ruler, he was focused on, I don't know that I can follow Jesus and lose all my wealth. He was focused on losing his wealth rather than the condition of his soul. Pilate, he was focused on his popularity with the crowd. When God wanted him to be focused on the reality that he was about to kill the Son of God. Totally, totally oblivious to that which was true and real and lasting and that mattered. And he was so focused on that which very soon would not even be on the radar. Last example I'll give you is this. I've taught the story of Jesus and the twelve in that boat during that storm. I bet you I've taught that story 50 times in the last 40 years. Maybe, maybe more than that. I was working on this and thinking about this and praying about this. And I thought about you know, how Jesus is in the boat with the twelve. And he says, he'd been preaching, and he says, let's go to the other side. Son of God says, let's go to the other side. I was a betting man. I'd bet on, they're going to get to the other side. They get in the middle of the, of the, of the uh, Sea of Galilee. This horrendous storm occurs. Everybody in the boat, save one, had the same two focuses that foci, foci, uh, uh, had the same two foci that sounds so wrong the same two foci that, that 
we would have, that they had. What if we don't make it? The storm was real. The waves were real. The rain was real. The, uh, the, uh, the wind was real. This isn't what if. This is, this is real life stuff. They're going down. And the same two, they asked the same, they were focused on the same two things we would. What if we don't make it? And how are we going to get across? Isn't that what you'd be focused on? How are we going to get across? And what if we don't make it? And you know what I felt like the Spirit of God said to me? Just like I'm talking to you, almost that clear. You know what I think Jesus, he, he exemplified one of the right focuses, foci. I think Jesus was thinking, guys, I've already told you we're going to get across. It's going to end well. You can put your money on that. I've already said we're going to get across. That's a promise from me to you. So we're going to get across. So now, either if you're tired, join me in a nap. Or if you're not sleepy, enjoy the ride. Just enjoy the ride. You won't ever get a ride as wild as this. I mean, we pay thousands of dollars to go to Disney World and go through experiences like the 12 had in that boat. You know the only difference? We always know at Disney World it's going to end well. Nobody would ride any of those rides if we weren't convinced it was going to end well, right? I think Jesus was saying, guys, enjoy the wild ride or take a nap. But don't focus on what if we don't make it. Don't focus on how are we going to get across. I've got those two covered. I've got those two covered. We are a society that is consumed with the immediate. With what's going on today. Today's headlines, today's meeting, today's deadlines, today's bills, today's meals, today's test. Today's sporting events, today's party, today's home repairs, today's trip, today's health issues, today's conflicts, problems, and needs. And the danger that we face is that we get so focused on today's challenges. Yes, Jesus said, don't worry about tomorrow. Today has enough trouble for itself. It, he does say that, but the context is not don't look ahead, don't think about things that, that will last. He's just saying don't get so consumed about the what-ifs of the future that you miss the joy of the trip. He's, but I still don't think he's by or voiding out the challenge that we ought to focus on things that last, that matter. That are truly real. Am I focused today. On the things that really matter. And that really last. I read a great book. I don't know when. A long time ago by Eugene Peterson. Um, if you hadn't read it. Let me summarize it for you. The name you read is called. Long Obedience in the Same Direction. You read that mom? You ever read that? Okay. It's, it is a, it's, a, it's a great book. Not an easy book, but it's a great book. Long obedience in the same direction. And his premise or his point of the book is this. When I focus on doing the right thing day in and day out for weeks and months and years... I will ultimately experience that which my heart most deeply longs for. When I focus on doing the right thing, that which God wants me to do, not talking about big things, little things, famous things, not famous things, not talking about that. Not even talking about being a missionary or a 
Bible translator. He's just talking about when I get up in the morning, seeing the power and the importance of linking choices together over a lifetime and learning to do that which matters most. And not getting bogged down or detoured by things that don't matter and that won't last. Long obedience in the same direction leads to the life that we long for. We're so thrilled with fireworks. But God is focused on growing sequoias. Ooh! Wow! Ooh! Wow! And in 30 minutes, we're back in our cars going home. Wasn't that great? Wasn't that spectacular? Wasn't that marvelous? And 30 minutes later, we're back home watching the weather. What God's, but God's not focused on fireworks. That's not what God's focused on. God's focused on growing sequoias that will stand, that people can use to build homes and families. People can get in out of the weather, people can build forts to stand against the enemies of life. People don't want in their hearts to be thrilled. They want to live around sequoias. My father-in-law, he's, he's a sequoia. That's who he is. He, he, he doesn't even know, he wouldn't know who Eugene Peterson is. But he lived, he got this idea and lived this life long before Eugene Peterson ever got a hold of it. He began to live a life of just stringing together day after week after month after year of doing that which he believed God wanted him to do. On Sunday morning, Charlie, what you going to do? Charlie, what you going to do Sunday morning? What do you mean what am I going to do on Sunday morning? Life. What do you mean what am I going to do? There's only one thing to do. What are you going to do when you, uh, what time's your alarm set before you go to work, Charlie? If you have to be at work at 8, I bet you don't set your alarm. What time you set your alarm? Well, there's only one time to set your alarm. That's 30 minutes earlier than you would have, so you can get up and read your Bible and pray. He just lived his life day after week after month after year doing the right thing. He strung together a life of long obedience. Jeremiah 17 puts it this way. The Lord says, Cursed are people who put their trust in mere humans, who rely upon human strength, turning their hearts away from the Lord. They're like stunted shrubs in the desert with no hope for the future. They live in the barren wilderness in an uninhabitable, salty land. But blessed are people who trust in the Lord and make Him their hope and their confidence. For they are like trees planted along a riverbank with roots reaching down deep into the water. Such trees are not bothered by the heat or worried by long months of drought. For their leaves stay green and they never stop producing fruit. Doesn't say they don't have droughts. Because you know people that go to church and read their Bible and don't drink, dance, dip, or chew and live right. They never have droughts. They never have famines. They never have storms. Right? Isn't that, if you do right, you'll avoid the problems of life. No. Jeremiah says, they're not bothered, they're not bothered by the heat. You hear that? 
good Christian, good Christian women, they're not bothered. She won't go and walk so many because it's hot. It's hot. Yeah. They're not bothered by the heat. <laughs> maybe it is, maybe it's not. I don't know about that. Um, God, God like my family, like my wife and like my daughter. They're not looking to me to answer or win the lottery or cure cancer. What they're looking for is a father and a husband who will day in and day out for a lifetime, string together a consistency of doing what God wants me to do. I'm not going to stand here and tell you that I've done a great job of that. I can tell you with all of my heart that I want to do a good job. And that's what they, they just want me to just day in, day out, focus on the things that matter most. Things that, they want me just to so good and wise and kind and righteous things day in and day out in good times and bad when it's easy and when it's hard, when it's clear and when it's confusing to just string together a life of focusing on what matters most. Out of the belief that if I do that, I will not avoid the problems of life, nor will those that I love. But God does promise me that I will be glad I lived that life and that someday He will make it worth my while. Paul says, don't grow weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest. It's so easy to get stressed and worried and consumed with the imminent to the exclusion of what really matters and that which will ultimately create the biggest harvest. And if you think I'm talking to you, I am. Please don't be confused. Those of you that are stressed out about your kids' grades, those of you that are stressed out about your bank account, those of you that are stressed out about your health reports, those of you that are stressed out about your relationships, are those things real? Absolutely. But there'll be a day when you'll look back and I'm telling you, those are not the things that you will look back and declare those were the things that mattered most. Those were the things that lasted. Those were the things that I wish that I had been focused on. There's an approaching army. Batten down the hatches. Get ready. Do everything you can do. And God says, stop worrying about things that don't matter. And start focusing on things that last. Whatever that looks like for you. Whatever that means for you. That's going to be different for every one of us. But we get all stressed out about everything. And all worried and anxious. I, I do. And when I let that derail me. And keep me from focusing on the things that God wants me to focus on. That's when I. I look back and wish I had done that differently. Okay, we got to stop. Your children, your children, your grandchildren, your mate, your neighbors, your coworkers, what they're longing for is to be able to see in your face a peace 
and a confidence that all is well even when it's not. Children don't want to look into their parents' faces and grandparents' faces and see terror. And I'm afraid that's what we watch the news and we look around us and we're terrified. And I'm not saying the things that we're terrified aren't real. I'm just saying that what our children need and our neighbors need and our mates need is to be able to look in our faces and see somebody that has got peace and joy because of God's commitment to take care of them even when things really are tough. Um, Brandon, August, y'all come up here and help me. Psalm 60 says, please help us against our enemies for all human help is useless. God, please help us against our enemies because all human help is useless. Well, Larry, what's that verse got to do with the Lord's Supper? That's the message of the Lord's Supper. Mom, can you get me into heaven? Mom, can you deal with my sin problem? Mom, can you give me joy when I don't have any joy? Can you give me wisdom when I lack wisdom? Dear friend, can you? Wife, can you? President Trump, can you? Lord, help me against my enemies. My biggest enemy being my own self. Because all human help is useless. We believe that God sent His Son to come down and provide real, personal, lasting help. Because all human help is useless. If you've trusted in Christ to give you the help that no human can give you, then I invite you to come and eat bread and drink wine or juice. Wine's purple, juice is yellow. And remember what the Lord Jesus did for you on the cross. And give thanks. You come. If you need prayer, there will be people on my right and my left at the windows that would love to pray for you.